Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Fort Worth, Texas. Welcome to the show, Dax Mitchell. Thank you, Victor. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Now, Dax, you've been involved in the real estate business in many different facets for a number of years. And we're going to have you back on the show more than once. But today we're going to focus on what is your main thing today, and that's industrial. But before we do, why don't you give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Thanks, Victor. Dax Mitchell here. Uh, grew up in, in Texas, small town Texas. Attended the University of Texas in Austin. While I was at university, I got my real estate license at about 19 and have been in the industry ever since in the brokerage capacity from 19 until around 2003, where I moved to Los Angeles and continued real estate there. And then in around 2008, I switched into sponsor role and have been a developer ever since 2008. I love it. I love it. You know, there's so many different ways to come into this business. And it certainly when you're a broker, the joke is that you're one letter away from broke and being a sponsor is definitely, or an owner in the business is definitely where you want to be. And I think most of our listeners are in that ownership role. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now in the realm of industrial. It's an area that right now, especially since the advent of COVID-19, it's one of the bright lights in the industry. It's not suffering the way office or retail is suffering. It's really an area that has been on trend for a while and the pandemic has really just put fuel behind the growth of that segment of the industry. Uh, it has. Um, I think that I found myself in the in the industrial sector intentionally, but not with, with this kind of market in mind. I did my first industrial deal in 2015. I was doing development and I wanted to, I was developing value add all over the country. And I wanted to find a way to grow my portfolio and get cash flow and have some transactional activity. As development is, you know, you know, they say uh, you don't have a real development deal unless you've had at least a half a dozen sheer terror moments. You know, they're long, they're arduous, they're capital intense. And for a younger burgeoning developer sponsor, it was successful, but I needed more deal activity. I needed to be sharper by doing transactions and then also growing the balance sheet with cash flow and net worth. So I, I stumbled upon the, the sale leaseback, the industrial, and then ultimately the sale leaseback mechanism financing. And I found that world to be stimulating you know, on the developer side because I was designing my own leases, building my own leases. I could control the yields from day one. But then I felt I found myself crossing into credit and profiling the tenants and having to grow and learn and think and waddle and quack like almost like a private equity company that has to go in and do the underlying analysis of the tenant financials on my own. It's been an evolving model for the last five, six years. And now, interestingly, with the onset of COVID and, and the current world we live in, we made our business buying industrial that was off Main Street, private credit. We were inherently in tune with 
what was going on in those companies is we, we get quarterly financial reports on all of our leases. So we already knew what was going on with the tenants. We already had relationships with the CFOs, CEOs. So, you know, when mid-March came and the world changed for all of us, I just had to pick up the phone and call, you know, the C-suite of our tenants and, and say, what's going on? You know, how can we help? What, what do you see? What's happening over there? And luckily, I guess we were able to get COVID with, uh, get through COVID, at least those periods of the stay-at-home mandate uh, impacted by COVID early on. You know, nobody was unscathed, and, uh, but I think we got through it smoothly and we knew we were able to give some relief to a few tenants but we knew who needed help and, and who didn't. And uh, it was just a different, a much different rhythm than what I went through in 2008. It seemed like it was more the banks were in trouble and there wasn't a lot of help. In this case, if a tenant called or when we spoke with a tenant, if they needed help, we could call the bank and get relief immediately, which then would in turn allow us to give relief. And it was a much more villagey, shoulder to shoulder almost kind of patriotic duty to work together and get through it. It, it was, uh, I don't want to say it was cool because it was not, but it was, it was synergistic like nothing that I've ever experienced, which had a little bit of, of a positive spin on things. That's an amazing insight, and thank you for that. One of the things I hear often in the world of industrial, and of course, industrial segments into so many different segments, whether we talk manufacturing, logistics, heavy equipment, there's just so many different facets, refrigerated. One of the things I often hear is don't bother doing anything in industrial if it's less than 100,000 square feet. And I'm not sure that's even necessarily true. What What's your perspective? I think uh, everything's deal by deal. We buy some that are 20, 30, 40,000 square feet. We buy some that are upwards of a half a million square feet and beyond it's all case by case. It's credit driven, it's location driven, it's price per pound driven, meaning the price per square foot. It's who's the seller. Uh, I mean, we closed one recently that was a smaller, a smaller deal, but we really like the seller and we do multiple deals with them. So it was more of a relationship play for us to execute on a sale lease back for them, which opened up some new business. So I think every, every deal is unique and in, in 100% case by case. It's got to stand on its own. And calling back to your previous question, I think if every deal stands on its own, and if we're buying every single deal, not because it's in a vertical or it's the kind of deals we do, I think if every deal stands truly on its own and you're buying fundamentals every single time in a disciplined fashion, then much harder to get hurt when things go, you know, get tough as they do. You talked a little bit about assessing the creditworthiness of your clients, and I'm sure when you're thinking about a sale leaseback scenario, that's probably the only thing that matters is if they're looking to pull back some capital and have you now become the bank, so to speak, the only thing that matters is their creditworthiness and the outlook on their business. It can be. Credit, you know, that's a whole nother set of conversations, an endless set of conversations, but Credit is somewhat data-driven. It's, it's empirical. It, it's also instinctual. Just because a company has declining revenue and maybe negative EBITDA doesn't mean that it's not going to continue and be viable. It doesn't mean that they're going to default on their lease. It doesn't mean that they're not going to get bought by a bigger concern. 
it's, it's probably not good practice to buy those types of companies, but everything has a story. And some companies roll up other companies and they do it with cash. They pull a lot of the cash out in operations intentionally, and they don't show big, big returns at the bottom. And sometimes they go negative. And, and some of those companies have been around 100 plus years. It's an interesting world, and it's unusual for real estate guys like us to have three credit guys on staff full-time that just analyze financials. I mean, it's just not, I don't, I don't know a lot of other shops that, that are small like ours that aren't institutional that, that, that take those kinds of tools from the institution, but I love what we're doing. And, I, and there's something that feels right about it to me, and it feels responsible in a way that we know, you know, I think we have a really good gauge on our risk. And I feel like we educate a lot of people on this and we're always talking about, you know, this style of real estate. And some people say, well, it's, it's not institutional credit, but neither is multifamily. I mean, you've got a hundred tenants in a building that none of whom are, are high credit. So, but the perception of risk is different on those types of deals. And I think the perception of small and mid, mid-sized companies that are private, I think the perception of the risk there is greater than the actual risk. And, and I think in, inside of that is where we find yields in, in our business. Well, I think one of the things that contributes to that is if I have a vacancy in an apartment, I'm going to fill that within one, two, maybe three months if it's really difficult to lease. You have 80,000 square feet come vacant in industrial. It could sit vacant for six months. It could sit vacant for a year. You're looking for that special tenant that's looking for that specific piece of space. And so from a risk perspective, it's easy to understand why the risk profile of those two asset classes are considered a little bit different. Oh, 100%. 100%. And I think my career previous to to this evolution included a lot of multifamily and and other asset types. And I, I own some office buildings for a while, a couple hundred thousand feet of office I think maybe it was a personality piece or, or maybe it was my own risk threshold that I found in owning office buildings that I just didn't like the shorter term leases. And I didn't like, I, I didn't like doing gross ups and cam reconciliations and, and fighting to get you know, my reimbursements from the tenants and you know, all the lease ups and not knowing. With industrial, I'm signing 15 and 20 year leases. They're absolute net. They've got escalations every year. I know what I'm doing. You know, I know where my value is going to be and within reason in five years from now, you know, unless things, the world changes again. But uh, I can do some projecting and I can plan. And because I don't have an extraordinary amount of management on these, it gives me the time to grow and acquire others and, and analyze the deals I do have and make sure the credit's good. In a way, I'm uh, even though I buy single tenant assets, I feel like I'm pretty risk averse. I'm a little bit of a nervous Nancy around short leases and chasing tenants for for money and things like that. It's, it's just not how I want to spend my time. So maybe maybe this piece of the industry uh, found me more than I found it. That makes a lot of sense. There's one school of business that says look for the flow of money and you want to see it whizzing past your nose. And if you can find a way to just stand in its pathway, some percentage will fall in your pocket. 
So if an Amazon fulfillment center opens up, should you buy the property across the street and build 30,000 square feet? Hmm. That is a great question. I have worked on some of these these facilities uh, and I'm working on one now. It's not bad company to be in. Uh, I would pro- I would say it's market dependent, you know, it's deal by deal, but in general wisdom that's probably a great thing. Emulate what the what the bigs are doing, what the greats are doing and that's probably a good place to be if you can find land next to an Amazon. I'd probably snap it up. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other segments. One of the ones that is emerging as, I'll say, a hot market, if you forgive the pun, is cold storage. A lot of the grocery chains that are doing fulfillment out of the retail space, they certainly don't need to. They can do that fulfillment out of much less expensive space. Managing supply chain disruptions requires increased local inventory. What what are your thoughts on cold storage? I like cold storage. We own quite a bit of it. It's in the chat rooms and and, uh, in the media and with investors right now. You know, an interesting thing about cold storage is the most of the guys that that do the big specs, you know, you don't see a lot of cold storage spec. And, And I think that's driven by the price per foot that it costs to build it and the uniqueness that comes along with what each tenant requires. Uh, so I think it creates a bit of a moat around maybe saturation of that asset class. But it, but again, there's a tremendous amount of capital pouring into it. I don't know whether it'll oversaturate or not, but I, I think it's a great place to be. I mean, it, it, it makes conventional sense to me that food's going to be hot for a long time and that cold storage is a good place to be. But again, it's going to be driven by the location and your basis and and the credit, you know, of your tenant that's going in. So I think it, it's a good vertical to look at as long as you're balancing the other components that you got to pay pay attention to on a real estate play. Well, given the huge inv- capital investment, certainly you wouldn't want to do something speculative. It would have to have that paying client at the end of the line waiting for it in order to, to justify that investment. Otherwise, you're just taking a flyer and doing the Field of Dreams thing, hoping they'll they'll just show up. Correct. And and food tenants, um, you know, not all of them, but most of them, you know, are thinner margin businesses. And this comes back to being able to identify the strength of a tenant. And even though a lot of them were open during the stay-at-home mandates this year and, and they got through, we saw we analyzed a lot of companies, you know, that we pass on on the on the sale leasebacks. But we saw a lot of companies whose revenue went down, but their their margins went up. You know, we saw a lot of guys that weren't doing well at all. But uh, I think on the whole, it's a good business. I think it's a niche within a niche. A wise man once told me, as I evolved in life and in my career, that I begin to know more and more about less and less. And uh, it, if I want to specialize. You know, that's a great specialty within the industrial. I, I don't think you'd go wrong being an expert in that area or investing in that in that vertical. We're seeing a lot of segments in the market right now where there's high rates of forbearance, high rates of distress, if not default. A lot of investors are sitting on the sidelines with dry powder waiting to pounce when those deals come on the market. Are you seeing any of that? shadow inventory or invisible inventory coming free in the industrial space? I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty insulated in, in my cocoon and focused 
My deal flow, it stalled. You know, we stalled in March and April. We we had a, a dozen deals in pursuit. We called all of the sellers and and uh, and asked for a year of pre-earned rent, which if it was prepaid, it would be clawed back. You know, it, it would theoretically could be clawed back uh, if the company's BK'd. So we opted for pre-earned rent language and we cleaned up force majeure and condemnation language. And, uh, and some guys, some, some folks wouldn't go for it. And we whittled down to about six deals. And, uh, and that's what we focused on closing. As far as shadow in inventory, you know, so that, that's how we got through it. I, I don't see, I'm not seeing the defaults and stuff. I mean, it, it makes sense that there, there will be an office and retail and, and hotel. But, Clearly. you know, like Buffett says, when people are fearful, be greedy and when people are greedy, be fearful. So if you really believe in the American spirit, market, ingenuity, and our ability to get through this, you know, hotel and retail would be on your buy list right now. And I think that the arbitrage is in interest rates being so low, not necessarily scooping up some some cheap deals on the buy, you know, not not buying for bottom price, which you can do, I'm sure, in any market. But buying at fair prices with these amazing rates and buying, you know, in depressed verticals like retail and hotel. I mean, now's when you scoop up those deals. I mean, that's what the disciplined player does. Takes a lot of confidence, you know, yeah. to, to, to wait in there, as you know. Yes, yes. Well, Dax, if folks want to learn more, if they want to connect, what's the best way? I have a website. My company's called Mag Capital Partners. It's magcp.com. My email is dax at magcp.com or generally uh, generally around and, uh, you know, to talk or share or educate or answer questions. And, and uh, we like hearing from, from folks all, from all over. Fantastic. Well, Dax, thanks for the insights and what's happening in the world of industrial. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Dax at magcp.com, magcp.com or directly at his email, dax, D-A-X, at magcp.com. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>